0: Hi everyone, thanks so much for being here. My name is Jane, I'm a Deputy Arts and Culture Editor at The Conversation and I'm really delighted to be here today with Emma-Jane and Clem Basto to talk about their memoirs. Uh, I'm just going to begin by acknowledging that uh, we are today we're gathering on the lands of the Kaurna people uh, and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. Uh, we recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land, and we acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Uh, this land that we gather on, Tandanyanga, has been a gathering place and a place of sharing stories for millennia, and it's a real privilege and an honour to continue that today. Uh, I just want to start by giving a bit of COVID messaging. Uh, I just want to reinforce some key conditions of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. So please maintain social distancing wherever possible. We strongly encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow directions given by the COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. Uh, Also, uh, we really encourage you to support the authors and writers week by purchasing books at the book tent. Uh, The books from this session will be available at the quick sales counter and Clem and Emma will also be signing books at the end of the session. So, I'm just going to introduce our authors. Uh, Clem Bastow. Clem Bastow's writing appears regularly in Guardian Australia and she's written extensively for The Saturday Paper, The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Big Issue. She's contributed chapters to books including Investigating Stranger Things, Refocus the Films of Elaine May and Copy Fight and wrote and co-presented the 2017 ABC podcast Behind the Belt, a documentary deep dive into professional wrestling. She's currently completing her PhD and Late Bloomer is her first book. Please welcome Clem. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Emma Ray Jane, formerly published as Emma Tom, is an associate professor at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. Prior to her career in academia, Emma spent nearly 25 years working in the print, broadcast and electronic media. Over the course of her working life, she has received multiple awards and prizes for her scholarly Uh, scholarly work, her journalism and her fiction. Diagnosis Normal is her 11th book. Thanks Emma. (laughs) (laughs) So in Late Bloomer, Clem writes about how her life was transformed after she was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder as an adult. It's about coming to that diagnosis and what that means for her life now, and it's also a looking back on her life and figuring out how autism shaped who she was. In Diagnosis Normal, Emma tackles some big subjects like child sexual abuse, being a gonzo journalist, cancer, unexpectedly becoming and unexpectedly becoming a mother before her own adult diagnosis of autism. So the autism is the thing what we're going to we're going to focus that on today. Look at that, you know, both your books. So. Clem, you sought out a diagnosis. Uh, what were you looking for in that process?
1: Uh, for me, it was kind of a last resort. I had had a number of ad hoc kind of, you know, half-assed diagnoses, which would, maybe it's this, or I don't know, maybe it's that. And every time I would go like a good autistic kid, well, you're the expert, so I'll try and take that on board. And I just never really felt like anything fit. Um, and I guess, I think what's important to note about uh, adult or late diagnosis. Uh, late can be, you know, in your teens or early 20s or all the way up to, I know people diagnosed in their 60s and 70s. Um, it's not because you feel a little bit different or, you know, you, you think you're a bit weird. Like, typically it's, it's a kind of um, act of, you know, desperation. For me, it was that I felt the kind of facade that I had built around myself to exist as normal in the world was really starting to crumble and there were lots of things in my life that I couldn't explain. Um, And then I was writing a screenplay uh, and it sort of, you know, I don't know if anyone knows about uh, film uh, in Australia but it usually takes 8 to 10 years to get anything made. So I'd been working on this script for a while and uh, it had become clear that the lead character was probably on the autism spectrum. So as part of the research process for that, I started to read about um, how autism can present in women and gender diverse people and kind of started going, mm, like, yes, yes, that was an experience I had, yes, that's my childhood. Uh, and so that was kind of what led me to that point. But having been screened, there was then about a three-month wait to get the results, because um, theres it will amaze you to hear not many people diagnosing adults uh and particularly not women um so in that three-month interim period I was really like struck by what if it's not autism like I just don't know what I'm going to do and that was something that a lot of people said because I think a lot of people are actually quite scared of autism so so often the reaction was mm, you know what are you going to do about that you know and what will you do if you're not autistic um which I i I would just be like, I don't know. Uh, And so when I got the, you know, congratulations, it's autism conversation, it was actually a real relief. Uh, But, yeah, I think it's important to to frame late diagnosis in that way, that it's not something that you do just kind of out of interest. You know, you're usually really up against it by that point.
0: Um, And, Emma, you didn't seek it out, but you had a lot of... uh, You had lots of relationships with professionals before someone said... I think you might have autism.
2: Yeah, I I went completely bonkers during the first um, COVID lockdown. Um, like I was sectioned in a psych ward briefly. Um, and in the aftermath of that dramatic incident... Um, Which was some I told someone about a a friend on the plane coming down here, and she said, I'm so sorry. And I was like, Oh no, it was so interesting. (laughs) Like the whole time it was happening, I was like, This is going to make such a good story. Um, But one of the, um, you know, the upsides of being forcibly sectioned in a psych ward by three police officers and three paramedics. is that i was sent to i I saw a new psychiatrist having seen various mental health professionals all my life because of always being quite strange um and having collected so many diagnoses um, over the decades and then when i saw i saw a new psychiatrist and um i think it was pretty much we had a 90 minute session and he said, Emma, I'm quite certain that you're on the autism spectrum. And I thought that was hilarious, like, because um, people had said that to me a lot, but I just didn't see myself that way. And the, for one reason, I said to him, Look, I understand that, you know, people who have autism aren't good at reading emotions, and I feel I excel at this. And. <laughs> he said and so how do you go about reading emotions Emma and I said well you know it's like CSI like you study people and you search for all of the signs and you make notes and then you run it through your emotional you know the the diagnostic matrix and then you look for the most likely suspects and that's the one that you go with and he said oh do you are you aware that that's not how most people read other people's emotions? And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And and so for me, um, I, I wasn't. It just sort of happened. Um, and it ha- it's been one of the more useful diagnoses I have to say that I've had because um, it's not like, oh, you know, now I can go get cured um, because <laughs> that's not really an option. But it's helped me become so much more compassionate about a bunch of stuff I thought and I was told by other people all my life was just me being difficult or just a bit of an asshole, and and that's how I'd come to see myself Mm. and so it just it was a there was this and there remains a, a really nice I have to remind myself of it. No, you know, this is not something I can actually help. Mm. Um, And I use it too to explain some of my weirder behaviour to other people in the hope that they might view me with a bit more compassion and understanding. So it's been a really useful diagnosis for me in that respect.
0: Yeah. Um, Both of you obviously went through, uh, you were just touching on it then, Emma, that sort of recontextualising a lot of your life Um, up until that point Um, so what was it like trying to figure out like what bits were autism and what bits were you and what bits were society like what was that process like?
1: Uh, Well I mean I think you know everything me is also autistic Mm -hmm. but I think yeah writing the book in particular was an interesting process of thinking about things like you know how much of this is a kind of traditional coming-of-age experience you know uh, and how much of that was influenced by autism but it is really hard to unpick them both i think like you know when when I say, you know, I'm autistic and often people will go, no, 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 you, you have autism or, you know, you suffer from autism. That's my favourite. Somebody said that to me one day. Do you suffer? I'm yeah. suffering right now. <laughs> personally, <laughs> personally, I thrive from autism. <laughs> exactly. You know, and so, so so that idea of, like, identity first is, like, well, even if it wasn't autism that caused me to moved to LA for two years to be an entertainment journalism journalist, I um, was autistic in that experience. Mm-hmm. So maybe my approach to it was coming from a different place that, you know, other people might make similar spur-of-the-minute decisions. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I mean, the subtitle for my book is How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life, but it's really How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life's Story, because I think, you know, I only, that's really the kind of the last chapter. Uh, yeah. So the rest of it is that sort of time travel process of going back and using my experiences to give broader context. Like, it was interesting, Emma, reading your book because I felt like yours was much more of a memoir, you know, and you gave really great contextualising information for the experiences that you'd had. But I think... Because in some ways, we've had, like, really similar careers, you know, um, and I felt so burned out by being in the pre me to personal essay industrial complex for five years... <laughs> that I actually was very cagey about, I know it's ironic because it's technically a memoir, but I sort of felt like I needed to hold back a bit and kind of use my experience to to explain things that people might've wanted to know about autism and maybe lacked that personal kind of, um, you know, like when you get diagnosed or when your kid gets diagnosed, you get told all these things and you just don't really know what they are. So mm-hmm. for me to be able to go, all right, well perhaps you've heard about meltdowns or you've been told about, special interests and then using my experiences to illustrate those things. And it is, you know, it's just my experience and I'm very different to almost every other autistic person I know, but just to find that kind of, like you were saying, that little spark of empathy in the reader to then understand those behaviours in you, I guess.
0: Yeah. What was that like for you, Emma, that sort of writing, looking back over your life and trying to figure things out?
2: I really like embracing uncertainty and not knowing. I wish more people were comfortable with doing that. And so my book is kind of a, a thinking through the fact that I don't actually know what part to, you know, how to explain. Yeah make sense of who I am or why I do things or why the things happen to me. Um, But because I'm sort of a professional nerd, like I get paid (laughs) to overthink um, for a living at a university, I am very interested in this thing. It's a special interest, in fact, um, in complex systems theory. And the the whole thing about complex systems is that you don't know... There's no clear, linear... um, sort of narrative that this necessarily causes that. And so I certainly, you know, I've been, di- I've got, been diagnosed also with complex PTSD and a bunch of ADHD and oh, there's a whole list of acronyms. Um, and so part of what I was doing in my book was like, pondering, you know, why is it so? And like, <laughs> this could be seen through this, lens and yet and ultimately and so I, I don't have um, any sure answers but I think that they I think that it's always worth engaging in these sorts of thought experiments um, and I also think it's really worth landing in a position of well you know this seems likely but ultimately how can we know um, I, I, I'm all in favor of more um, more humility and and uncertainty um, rather than this rock solid conviction because there's actually not a lot that we can be rock solid sure about Mm -hmm. including gravity (laughs) (laughs) seriously
1: sorry but (laughs) if i can just like i uh (laughs) sorry to info dump um I think what I found really interesting reading your book, though, is that although it wasn't about autism, and maybe this is because my special interest currently is my PhD research, which is looking at autistic rhetoric and autistic ways of writing, and and, and how autistic experience um, influences that. I found it a very autistic read, so it was interesting in that, like, the the so-called you know autism section was quite short, but I found the the tone and the, the nature of your book so um, familiar, and I found that really, like, really, really refreshing because I think I still felt like, oh, I, I mean, it's something I have in my life. I feel like I have a foot in both worlds, sort of like a kind of cultural attache between the, the autistic and the non-autistic world, and so part of my writing process was like keeping a lid on some of the things that in my academic writing I just
0: completely let rip. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you for letting Rip. Um, Clem touched on this before, but you have sort of these similar careers, started writing quite young, uh, but uh, you're both in academia now. Uh, Clem's doing a PhD, Emma has a PhD, Um, but you also both write about really struggling um, in educational situations, and Emma dropped out of high school, and Clem dropped out of university. So, what was it like? finding yourself back in those institutions again as adults?
2: Oh, it's just so <laughs> hard. Like, 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 so many things that people... Like, I understand that people find easy. Like, for me, big challenge right now is that one of the things that I can makes it very hard for me to function is multiple audio sources. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just like, oh, oh, God, I can hear sounds over there and also soft sounds and loud sounds. And and so it's very... I don't know what it's like for other people who don't get... Like, it feels like it fries me mm. on the inside and it makes me want to start crying and screaming and running away. Like it, Like, to even... Like, I'm so, I've been looking forward to this session so much, like, and I've been looking forward to talking about this so much and I've been hanging out to meet Clem, who's, like, I, lo- I love her book and she's, like, look, she's so spunky as well. <laughs> like she's so, it's just, ah, oh, fangirl. But the environment, like, it's, it's so, so hard to sit still yeah. and do this. Even though at the same time I really want to, part of me is like on the inside is crying because it's so hard. And so going into the office has a different set of challenging, um, you know, provocations like fluorescent lights, like how dare they? And (laughs) fluorescent lighting and like conversations in hallways, like what the... You know, I'm like, where do they get off, you know? (laughs) And meetings in rooms, like, with, like, groups of people and not being able to move around. Like, so I love the job and the thinking and the writing, um, but I I struggle desperately in... I I feel like, like, because it's an invisible disability or an invisible whatever, like, there's not the neuro... um, It's not the equivalent of wheelchair ramps, basically, Mm. for people who struggle invisibly with things that other people can't, you know, don't even think about, don't even realise might be a problem.
1: Mm -hmm. Sorry,
2: long answer.
1: I feel pretty much exactly the same way. I mean, I, I was crying on the way here because I got lost. Both of us were weeping. minutes to go, we were in the green room, we were like, both like white knuckle gripping the armchair. Um, <laughs> and it, it, what Emma says is exactly right. You know, we're at this sort of cultural moment where I think, you know, we've, we've just gotten to the point where most buildings have wheelchair access, mm-hmm. you know, or a closed, you know, circuit for um, people who are hearing impaired. Like... The reality is is that I think people are starting to become interested in this idea of neurodiversity, which while we're talking about it, neurodiversity... Like, humanity as a whole is neurodiverse. A person is neurodivergent. I feel like often we say neurodivergent because we are scared to say particularly autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think there's this sort of... Uh, ..you know, in the kind of collective, unconscious, popular... ..whatever you want to call it, um, interest in autism, but I think a lack of consideration for how autism exists in the world so like I agree with Emma it's it's really I'm in this year like what's Malcolm saying like (laughs) because for me you know like my girlfriend often says are you even are you listening to what I'm saying because we'll be walking along talking and I'm actually like it's called weak central coherence like it's looking at the trees trees instead of the forest forest instead of the trees I can't remember but, you know, things like that. I'm listening probably to that both conversation. both yeah. yeah. I'm listening to that conversation. There was a dog over there that I was looking at. Yeah. I was thinking, how old's that Kelpie? You know, like, um, it's uh, it's a tricky thing. And, it, yeah, it's the same with teaching. Like, mm-hmm. the act of teaching I love because it's a bit like this. I love to perform. And in the moment, I can. So, I can turn it on for an hour and a half. Uh, and then I'll go back to the hotel and get into bed. Like, I'll probably go into the pool for half an hour after this and, and be underwater. Um, but, yeah, teaching... Teaching itself, the act of teaching, is fantastic. And it's the same with research. You know, I love the research process. I don't love a lot of the stuff that goes along with academia uh, and the, you know, neoliberal university. Um, And, you know, it's funny because we talk about these things being difficult for autistic people. I think they're difficult for everyone. And it's like broader physical accessibility questions where when things are accessible for people who may have sensory processing issues... Um, or needs in that space. It's actually more pleasant for everyone. Mm-hmm. So most people don't actually like working under fluorescent lights with the heater on, blast furnace temperatures all day. Um, but there's still this sense that if we bring that up as autistic people, as part of our uh, access needs, it's like it's a bit oh well, you're kind of just being you know a bit spoiled. Like uh, so it is. Yeah, it's really hard. It's yeah. really hard.
0: So what would uh, what would be your sort of a wheelchair ramp for, for autism? What what are the things that you think society, on that sort of structural level, needs to do? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Where do you start? More funding, you know? Funding that isn't for trying to turn little autistic kids not autistic, like mm-hmm. the, the so-called gold standard in Australia are, are I hesitate to use the term therapeutic approaches. It's basically conversion therapy. Um, and you know, I talked. I talked to a friend of mine who was diagnosed in their teens, but but you know, kind of understands something of the, the late diagnosed experience, and said, you know, when you get to thirty or forty, you've kind of like ABA'd yourself. You know, you've you've tried Can you to explain what ABA so is. So ABA is. Oh, I'm getting controversial. <laughs> uh, applied behavior analysis, which. You know, it's, it's like any industry. I'm sure there are some terrific people in it. But broadly, it's developed from the same thinking that, that conversion therapy was developed from. We now know that that's bad for gay and gender-diverse people. Um, there is still this sort of misunderstanding that it's a good idea for autistic kids. And it's, you know, at its most extreme, making a you know preschooler do the equivalent of a full-time working week just so they can look you in the eye and say, good morning, like, who cares, you know? Um... So I think, uh, you know, just a total structural societal uh, rethink is all yes, I want, yeah. like... <laughs>
2: just a little revolution. <laughs> just a complete no, paradigm yeah.
1: shift. It's easy, yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, there's not much support for adults, you know. Like, mm-hmm. really, there's, there's some really terrific day programs and there's a few employment initiatives, but um, you're sort of... A, a, so if you do have the immense privilege to, to receive a diagnosis as an adult... That's kind of it. Like, then it's like, well, good luck, you know. You might be able to get back in with the person who screened you in six months' time for a, for a cancellation session. Like, so that, yeah. I don't know, there's so much. And it's so specific to, to different people.
2: Yeah, I mean, but on a, like, a really simple level, um, like, I was telling Clem when we were um, weeping as we <laughs> <laughs> prepared ourselves in the green room, room beforehand, that um, when I was organising the paperwork for the Brisbane Writers' Festival, they specifically said, do you have any special requirements? Like, would you like access to a quiet space before you speak? And, like, I just wept. Like, it was just heavenly. Mm. First of all, that they offered, that that was on their radar, but um, also for myself to realise that that's something that I can have a right to ask for and that it's not me being difficult or whatever. So I think um, s- some of the things are, like, there's huge complex structural issues, but there's also really small mm. issues, you know, like I just, I just feel like society could really be much kinder to all the sweet widows that we see yep amongst us all the time, like the blinkers and the people that can't maintain eye contact or, you know, blurt weird shit out at parties, which is more me all the time. (laughs) Um, You know, like, there's... It's just from moving, like, broadening from just the autism spectrum. Like, there's this huge, amazing spectrum of humans. Like, there's a bunch of, you know, beautiful weirdos and beautiful weirdness in most of us. Um, And I feel like... I don't know. I I seek those people out. Like, I look for the other sweet weirdos and gravitate towards them. Um, And it would be lovely if... More people did that, and instead of like backing away in fear, um, like I agree with Clem about the structural stuff, and there's a whole piece around the fact that so many girls and women aren't being diagnosed um, with autism when they should be because of the gender bias spectrum. Mm. Um, but there are also quite simple things, including you know, like. Like embracing the 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 sweet widows among us, um, Mm. which I think would make a difference.
1: And visual schedules, just give me a photo. Like I don't, you know, like part of the reason I was crying is because I got lost and I was just looking around. Like, oh, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that, you know, like. I went to an event which was Autistic Run, so I think that you know it was probably miles ahead in that sense. But it was like this is a photo of the building, this is a photo of the side of the building where you're going to go to find this photo of the door, go through that door, this is a photo of where you turn left, like, and it was the first time, this was a while ago, this was not long after I'd been diagnosed, but it was the first time that I'd experienced that and I could, it was the same as Emma with the quiet room, like I was like, oh my god, this is what I've needed my whole life and it just meant that I didn't have to spend two and a half hours preparing myself for the um you know indiana jones level journey to go in the side door of the national (laughs) gallery like uh they're just they're small things but they can have such a huge impact because it's again it's that empathy thing it's saying we actually understand it's not just we'd like to hear about your story you know or 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 we're 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 ticking a quota a diversity quota box it's um go ahead and do that but do that understanding what the needs of of those people are as well and i agree about the sweet weirdos like i think about people i know and love who you know a borderline personality disorder you know it's still cool to talk about that like it's a really scary thing you know even depression like we still have so many strange ideas about oh don't tell your you know don't tell your work that you're you know you're suffering like
2: well i mean unfortunately the stats suggest that if you've got a mental illness and you disclose it at yeah, work you'll, you, get you'll get sacked or, <laughs> or not down, move through the downsized. ranks but here's some great news if you don't disclose it you're also likely to get sacked and not be because yeah. you're, you're behaving in a way that doesn't compute so i do feel like the sort of you know neurodiversity and mental health equivalent of the wheelchair ramps are sorely needed, mm. like, um, right through um, right through our lives. Uh, and I think we're a really long way from yeah. that. Absolutely. Unfortunately.
0: Uh, something that you uh, touched on, Emma, is uh, the fact that autism is overwhelmingly diagnosed in boys and... Hold on, is that...
2: It's like... Three to one, is that overwhelmingly? Like, I mean, it's a lot more, but... Okay.
0: More often? Traditionally.
2: I think it's changing. Yeah. So So, So it's like one girl to every three boys, and girls need a lot more of the characteristics to get the diagnosis.
1: Yeah. So when I was talking, I spoke to a couple of psychologists when I was writing the book, and I said... Because I was sort of trying to get context for, like what I call in the book the sliding doors moments. so you know, parent-teacher interviews where where something was raised but they didn't really know what it was. So I would say to these psychologists, let's say somebody had taken that further, what do you think would have been the likelihood? And and, you know, this is the 80s, like it's not that long ago, 80s and early 90s when I was at school, um, they said, you know, without a significant intellectual disability we wouldn't have even considered the possibility of autism. and it, yeah it's a bit better now but it is i think yeah it's really important to to kind of stress that
0: it's not prevalence it's yeah diagnosis one, one of the uh, you both write about rain man <laughs> uh, so what what is it like what does it mean that that since the 80s has been this sort of oh. dominant narrative
2: i mean i got diagnosed and someone went oh rain gene <laughs> and I was like oh Really? Like, because Rain Man, like, it was based on... Um, Kim Peek. Yeah, Kim Peake, who wasn't um, on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it created this idea... Well, first of all, the, Clem knows this so much better than me, but all the early um, research was done on boys...
1: Yeah.
2: Um, ..by a Nazi. That's right. <laughs> um, and so... And and there were all these stereotypes around the um, what was it the little professor like this idea yeah. like there's been g- girls that went to try and you know get diagnosed and they were told they weren't good enough at maths to be autistic. Yeah, well this like, was
1: me. I was shocking yeah, at maths, me so too. I can't be Rain Man,
2: oh. you know. <laughs> you know, and so there is. Well, oh, I've forgotten the
0: question. Oh, what does it mean Rain when man. that's the sort of yeah oh. cultural narrative?
1: Oh yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's really hard because that's, you know, I think of myself. I mean, I am media literate. You know, I work in the media. I study media and communications. Uh, my family, are the same. We're all very kind of switched on. And so, for us to feel that weight of the popular media depiction of autism, your average person has absolutely no idea. So you do. You look to Sheldon. You look to BBC Sherlock and all of these sort of you know Aspie-coded characters and or at the other end of the, the, the sort of TV spectrum, the, like, unrelenting tragedy model, which is kind of Rain Man, you know. Mm-hmm. At the end of Rain Man, we're supposed to go, thank God he's going back to the to the institution. This is a person who can't ever live by themselves, you know. It's like, it's framed that way, that they have this road trip, and then Tom Cruise is sort of, like, valorized for, for making the decision to send, send him back, send Raymond back. Um, so it's like, you've got these sort of twin... Ideas of autism, which are yeah the savant model and the like the tragic model, and the reality is somewhere in between for most people. No matter what number they're assigned on the autism spectrum, you have your moments of struggle and your moments of brilliance within that. But it's the rest of it is kind of shades of grey.
2: Like there's, I'm really like I love autism. Television, like the recent <laughs> stuff, like then you know, I the, there's a new um, series out called As We See It. I love that, and, and you know, it was great to see adults living, you know, mostly independently, being uh, you know difficult sometimes, mm. and having um, a, a variety of presentations and you know strengths and. Um, but it's interesting that autism is having such a cultural moment uh, and i do I do think you mentioned borderline personality sort of before, like that's a, like a one of the mental um, illnesses that really ha like it's kind of cool to, in some circles it's cool to be autistic yeah like there's like all these funny autistic people on television and atypical so funny and autism memes yeah um But firstly, I I would hate to think that we're not also extending that to some of those more. There's a lot of stigma around those other conditions, Um, and secondly, there's still a lot of like the reality of autism isn't all just like fun. um, Mm. You know, blurting out inappropriate things or wearing noise cancelling headphones and looking really cool on buses. (laughs) Like, you know, one one thing that um, have, you know. For instance, one of the the big issues surrounding the fact that girls aren't being diagnosed at the rates that they should be is that girls with autism are far more likely to suffer sexual abuse as kids and then sexual violence as they get older. Um, That was my, my experience, although I didn't sort of put all that together until I was, you know, 50. And in, you know yeah, 50 and getting the autism diagnosis and thinking, oh, hang about, how did that, what, really? Um, But, and Clem, you write about it um, really well in your book too, is that as kids, well, and as grown women, (laughs) we're not great at reading a room. Yeah. We're not great at um, being able to necessarily decode other people, even if we are doing a CSI (laughs) matrix, (laughs) you know, thing in the background. And... I just, because I find it almost physically impossible to lie, so don't ask me if you look good in your outfit unless you want, like, i really... <laughs> I just cannot bring myself to make the lie come, I don't know why. But most of my life I've assumed that that's lo- the same for other people. Yeah, same. And so, like, I'm really easy to fuck over. Same. Um,
1: and we're also taught compliance, especially if you don't know you're autistic, because I think for little girls particularly... It, a lot of our innate behaviors are sort of like that's naughty, don't do that, don't be rude, you know I mean, my parents were terrific, but like there's a lot of that weight of expectation around how young girls are supposed to behave and so um I mean I don't think that's only young autistic girls like a lot of those therapies that I was talking about are also about teaching compliance, and so you know when I hit the scene in my twenties and looked kind of like a sexy cool girl who wrote about music journalism like I was doomed like and I'm still recovering from a lot of the experiences that I had you know it's funny I had a a bunch of other diagnoses after I wrote the book you know PTSD um and yeah it's a it's a really it's a really tricky thing to navigate and I've actually just co-authored a paper with a with a colleague of mine who's a psychologist about why are we not looking into you know rates of sexual violence and, and intimate partner um abuse amongst autistic adults and particularly autistic adult women, like it's just not, no one's, no one's looking.
0: Um, You both write uh, about how your memoirs are explicitly (laughs) non-linear, so Clem writes, to write and remember in neat order would be to deny the nature of my autistic personhood. Can you talk to that a bit? Yeah, so there's a bit towards the end of my book
1: where I talk about how time works for me. I
0: love that bit. I've I've looked at that
2: page again and again and again because it's just so good.
1: And, yeah, it's like I'm constantly in sort of three timelines at once. So, you know, right now thinking about what I might have for lunch, you know, what I'm going to do next week, what's going to happen at my third milestone uh, presentation and then also in the past as well Uh, and it's... um, You know, I sort of tried to represent it typographically. It's like, here's three discrete chunks of text and this is what it's like in my mind. Um, But I think what's interesting is that a lot of so-called, non-so-called Western understandings of autism recognise that. So, like, the Maori understanding of of autism is that it's, you know, in their own time and and, um, and space, like, that it is a kind of non-linear way of being in the world. Um, which I guess is why we're always really bad at remembering, you know, what we've got on and when to go to things and how much time you need to leave. to. Because, you know, often we're sort of just in daydream land. But for me, you know, it was important that the book reflect that. I think if I'd had my way, it would have been a lot less <laughs> linear than it was. But, uh, yeah, thats it's really hard for me to start at, you know, the beginning, go to the middle and finish at the end. You know, when even when I was writing... Uh, ...journalistically, which I still do from time to time... ...I rarely start at the start... ...you know, I usually think of some... ...maybe the, 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 the closing line... ...or, like, the, the, the midpoint of the article... ...and then kind of build around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really glad that that came across... ...because I sort of thought that was, like, going out on a limb a bit... ...to try and give the reader... ...a bit of a virtual reality experience... ...you know, just a little tiny hint of, like... ...what it's like to think differently... Like I think the Temple Grandin movie from HBO with Claire Danes in it is really, really terrific representation. So I'm a, I, like the way it manifests for me is I'm quite a visual thinker. So my girlfriend is the opposite. She has a voice in her head, and we're both autistic. That's the, sorry, the context that's missing. Um, uh, and she was stunned when she said to me, "You know, do you have a, do you hear like is there like a narrator? Do you think about conversations?" And I was like, "No, I just see see." films basically. Mm-hmm. So I guess it makes sense that I'm the screenwriter. But yeah, trying to trying to like convey that, that autistic quality to the reader was really important to me.
0: What about you, Emma, thinking about that autistic quality um, Well and first of all that? we don't like you know, theoretical physicists
2: don't know what time is. So <laughs> like you know, what like we might like, oh, we didn't write in a you know, chronological time like time is as Doctor Who said this idea of timey-wimey, timey-wimey. like the, the, the most the smartest theoretical physicists in the world are the ones that go we have no freaking idea um, so but putting that aside I didn't write uh, write my book in a chronological way partly because um, because of um, childhood like sex abuse and trauma complex trauma uh, my memories were really strange um, so I knew what had happened to me as a kid over many years from when I was seven I kind of forgotten anything but I kind of split it up into lots of little fragments and put them in different parts of my mind so that I didn't have to look at the full picture and so I didn't tell I didn't even tell anyone partly because I didn't even know how to make the I didn't even want to put the picture together to be able to tell anyone. Um, and so it wasn't until my mid-twenties that I accidentally let slip to a psychiatrist something that gave away the, the sex abuse that I kind of faced it and I started trying to put all the... I put the pieces together. Um, and. I was really, um, it was like a very, it was a very difficult thing to do, but I needed to do it, I guess, to integrate myself and my memories, but I guess I was pondering, like I was really interested in, I, I did a lot of reading about how trauma actually you can code memories differently yeah. if you're being traumatised. Like, you know, just floating free-floating yeah, so, particles. Yeah, so you can have you know it goes through the um, hippocampus, I think. Don't the wo- oh, I, I don't so. know, the big hippo on campus, yes, the hippo <laughs> campus. Um, and so the thing about trauma and, you know, statistically a bunch of you would know this from first-hand experience is that, you know, the word triggering gets used a lot and um, overused a lot on social media. Like to be triggered in the PTSD sense yeah, um, because of the way your memories have been encoded during trauma it's not like oh I'm remembering that horrible thing and that makes you feel horrible you can have quite a visceral Mm. response and temporal your temporal your ability to go well it's like 2022 I'm now this old I'm here I'm safe you can feel like you're back it feels like it's happening again live Mm. like at their worst being triggered um and having a flashback it's like being back in the middle of it you feel the feelings you can smell you can hear you see um and so i uh, this is a really long answer to the question which was like i haven't experienced my life chronologically yeah like i didn't really fully put those memories put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together to kind of look at, the, at you know, what was on the outside of the box. That was an ongoing process from my mid-twenties. And so I tried to capture a bit of that in the way I wrote it. Um,
0: I'm going to ask one final question and then it's over to you. There's a microphone in the middle here. If anyone wants to ask a question, if you could just line up behind that um, while, we, while some people get ready to do that. Uh, you both wrote your books during COVID. <laughs>
1: don't recommend. <laughs>
0: yeah, so what was it like writing a book in, uh, in lockdown and sort of spending that much time, I guess, in your own brain and thinking about yourselves and your lives in that environment?
1: Uh, hell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was, you know, I guess it was special in a way to have to, that enforced time and focus and, and to have a project to kind of try and make time feel less timey wimey, you know. Like in Melbourne, we were in lockdown for a thousand years, so so that was good. But but I guess at the same time, I was also st- going through being diagnosed with PMDD, so post pre premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, which is sometimes colloquially known as like hormonal bipolar. So I was not in a good place. <laughs> Um, but you know, and I think part of that was that, trau- that that experience of you know reliving traumatic memories. I mean, you're not reliving really, like like Emma said; it's not they're just there, um, and and sort of doing this little dance around what to include and what not to include. And there was a draft of the book that was not as upbeat as this, uh, but I think it was important to get it out mm-hmm. to sort of. I, I did find that in a way quite therapeutic. I think the 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 bummer remix of late bloomer, which Will stay forever locked in my hard drive. Um, I was
2: really shocked that I didn't enjoy the lockdowns as much as I was expecting to. Because I was like, yes, <laughs> oh, no one can leave their houses. I don't have to go to work. You know, I can work from home. And then, but but I was also locked down with my fifteen-year-old um, daughter, who, whom I adore. Um, and but they they are a Non binary, they, them, Um, they also have a lot of mental health issues, um, and I have their permission to talk about this, um, but they were self harming, and so I was dealing with my own craziness and theirs. Plus, I need to spend probably about 80% of the time on my own like, Mm. really on my own, like, just no one within a long distance except for my animals. Um, and to be having people, someone around me that even though I adore them more than anyone else in the whole world, having been locked down like that was just like, some, like the non solitary version of solitary confinement. Like it was, it drove me literally crazy. Like that's when I snapped and Um, so it was like a best of times, worst of times thing. It was, I'm glad it's, that bit is
1: finished. Same. I think that aloneness actually is a really important thing, like, autistically, that, that people don't, like, it's a constant dance, you know. I think Temple Grandin said that autism is, like, desperately wanting a hug but not wanting anyone to touch you. Like, (laughs) so you're, you're in this, like, tension a lot where yeah it's like I, there are people I love and I love to see them but I also really need to be by myself the bulk of the time and, and yeah lockdown really shifted that because you know I had a housemate and then in some of the later lockdowns I had a girlfriend as well um, and it's a, it's a tricky thing I think autistically that, that need to be kind of in your own, in your own time and space you know mm-hmm. like um, that's, that's a really hard one to ask for Uh, And I haven't worked out how, (laughs) if anyone has any
0: suggestions. (laughs) Um, Go to questions. Hello. Thank you for answering. Well, my daughter is 15, and she was diagnosed with autism in December. And I'm embarrassed to say that prior to her diagnosis, I had thought she rude and just difficult. What advice... Or what do you think I should know as a parent?
1: Shall I defer to the parent? Uh,
2: I think there's two things here. One is that, like, not to go too hard on yourself mm. for finding... Um, your daughter difficult. Like we can be really, really difficult. It is
1: difficult. <laughs> like
2: seriously. Like I'm a, I've I've got enough self awareness to know that sometimes my behaviour really upsets people and is hard. So the first thing I'd say is like, not to go too hard on yourself for finding her difficult. Um, but for her, all I can. Say, and I don't know if it's true for you, for for her and you because I don't know either of you, but that that sense of like giving her permission, like letting her know that it's not her fault, you know that, that and letting her know that other cool people have autism <laughs> too.
1: Yeah.
2: Um. But but, you know, that's when girls like that self-flagellation. You know, and that pressure to, like, constantly wear normal drag and mm. burn out, like, helping her not give herself a hard time. But that's just guessing.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's I think, a tension where it's the, the concern, I don't know if you went through this, is that I, you, you're worried that they'll then be labelled, you know. But the thing is, if you don't have the right label, you kind of... Well, everyone in the playground gives you other ones. Uh, and then you, you kind of rush in and do your own ones and, you know, that's stuff like I'm an idiot, I'm stupid, I'm, what's wrong with me, I'm wrecked, you know, uh, so in a way what a gift for her to know at a younger age. Um, so I think, you know, to introduce her to try and foster that sense of autistic pride. Um, and yeah, like Emma said, that's, there's a lot of cool people out there, um, both famous and non-famous, you know. Uh, so, and I think the, the, the benefit of the sort of cultural moment around neurodiversity at the moment is that there are terrific um, autistic advocacy groups uh, and advocates and people in the public eye that they can look up to, that that you know were, were a bit harder to find once upon a time. So, yeah, but but I tell her congratulations. <laughs> thank, you. thank
0: you, thank you.
3: Hello, well. I also have a 15-year-old daughter who's recently been diagnosed with autism and uh, we've been given um, recommendations from the paediatrician of what to do, one of them being occupational therapy. And uh, up up till recently, we just thought, oh, she's very strong-willed and, as the other lady said, difficult and rude, especially to me, more to me than to my husband. And I've always been a sensitive person, so I've sort of thought... What, have I done something wrong? And also, I'm wondering whether um, reading your books might also help her. Look, I reading Clem's
2: book really helped me. Like, and I'd already done a heap of reading, um, and I, like part of it was, oh, it's just so lovely to. Except as I was saying to Clem, I read Clem's book. I was like, this is. <laughs> she seems totally normal to I me. I was know. like, it's where's a... the autism yeah. Yeah. Emma? Um, <laughs> but, but I learned a lot. There's a lot of fantastic information in Clem's book, um, which is much more focused on autism. My, mine is more in part... Not in passing, yeah. but...
1: I feel like Emma's is an amazing book to read, an autistic perspective and, and like, an autistic way of being in the world. Um, with mine, I think I was sort of doing a bit of that autism diplomat thing and trying to work in some ideas of self-advocacy and, and, and autistic pride within that so things like all right, I know it's scary to see someone have a meltdown here's what you can do you know things like that. what does a meltdown feel like? Um, so yeah I mean I would hope I think I think reading them would be would be probably a great step and um, you know watching some autistic stuff, watching Hannah Gadsby do Douglas um, you know Josh Thomas says, everything's going to be okay like I think it's a great time in that sense to to kind of expose yourself to other people's autistic experience, which then makes you, you know, it's a lonely thing. It is the nature of autism. You kind of, you are a bit, you know, bare by himself if anyone else on earth has ever read that picture book. Um, So yeah, I think, and like Emma said, you know, we do have a lot of difficult aspects about us. like, I was having a meltdown the other day at a sort of, you know, Kafka International Airport bureaucracy disaster at my university, and I was, like, crying and screaming, going, I'm sorry, I know I sound really angry, but I'm actually autistic and I'm having a meltdown. Like, it's, it, is, it is difficult. Um, and, you know, in those moments when she's not able to step outside that and kind of play the diplomat role, you know, to just have empathy for that experience and know that you didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I'm sure you did a great job. Like. The trouble is there's still so much, you know, cultural baggage around particularly the role of the mother in autism. Like um, Bruno Bettelheim has, you know, plenty of his own capital capital B baggage, but part of that was that he introduced this idea of the refrigerator mother in the 60s, that autism was, you know, caused by mothers not hugging their children enough. It was debunked about six months later, but, the, but that really a lot of people, I think, grabbed onto that idea that it's somehow the mum's fault. It's always
2: um, the mother's fault.
1: It's always, yeah, you know. Uh, so, Hosti- yeah. Hostile wounds. That's you right, know, like, yeah. you know, geriatric mothers, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Nobody ever cares about the dads. Like, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice for a change? But yeah, so it's not your fault. I mean, it's, it's, um, it just is. Like, autistic people are very lovable and if we weren't, we wouldn't continue to exist. So, you know... Um, somewhere in the family tree, you know, was probably another autistic person. Oh,
3: that was going to be another question. Is it hereditary? <laughs> I, I sometimes wonder. It is heritable, I was, yeah. I was a shy kid and got teased easily and people said, oh, you're different, you're strange. And, and I look back and think, am I
1: autistic? I mean, maybe. It was unheard of back then. Yeah, maybe. You know, it happens a lot. I have a lot of friends who've been diagnosed as their children were being diagnosed. And, and I I actually only actively you know sorted out because a friend of mine was having her child diagnosed at the time so we sort of went on the journey together Um, so yeah it is entirely possible and even if it's not autism it might be something on you know the neurodiversity um universe so yeah i think allow it to um give you the opportunity to be gentle both to her and to yourself through that journey and congratulations thank thank you
0: (laughs) thank you Hi, Um, you sort of touched on
2: this briefly earlier, but I've noticed there seems to be this sort of um,
3: joke running in academia that it attracts a lot of autistic people. (laughs) Do you think there's any truth to that, or is it just sort of like one of those stories that people tell that is like a nice
1: narrative? Thanks.
2: Well, maybe both. You know, it's a nice, like, academics are weird. Like, (laughs) um, and I speak from personally, I speak. personal experience of being a weird one but um, I don't know like there's certainly a way of the way in the academy we're supposed to think and like robots. Um, I actually hate that bit of academia. Mm. Um, I'd much rather be like woohoo ideas you know this one. I
1: keep using exclamation marks in my exegetical material and getting told off for it.
2: I actually think most psychiatrists I've ever met seem really aspy. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, my God. Oh,
1: I think most of the prominent autism experts... Like... They are so
2: aspy. And I said that to my diagnosing psychiatrist. and said, you know, you seem way more aspy than me. And he's like, oh, I see. You
1: know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I, who knows? Yeah, like,
1: I think it's a bit of both. I think academia does reward a different way of thinking... That there's sort of a Venn diagram crossover so I think of the way I think as autistic and so I have this interesting back and forth with my supervisors where they will often go that may be an autistic experience for you but it is also an academic thing you know whether it's like ways that we explain our findings or things like that but yeah I mean you know autistic people are very good at like you know you get the predator like heat-seeking um, <laughs> vision, and I've definitely spotted a few other un- undiagnosed people in in my department. So yeah, I think. It
2: like, if you do a PhD, you're going to think about one thing for five years. Like kind of how how to
1: thinking about that, one thing, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so I, th- I think Emma's
0: right. I think it's both. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's, we're coming up to time now, so oh, we've just got room questions. for one one last question.
2: I oh, they've been waiting and
0: standing. Um, <laughs> I've been recently diagnosed with autism and I figured out that I'm not very good at taking criticism and I was researching into uh, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, so I was wondering how you go about, like, taking constructed criticism. <laughs> so badly! Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think, you know, for me, what has been good about the PhD is a lot of it is, in, is written down, so I sort of have the opportunity to go smash some things and you know kick the cat metaphorically um and and rage 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 and then i come back and i'm like okay great thanks very much i can see where you're coming from but yeah i've really struggled with that you know that was where a lot of looking back i guess my autistic behaviors kind of manifested was like just raging against being told that i'd done the wrong thing or that i got something wrong and i think a lot of it is to do with shame like it's Because I talked to my friend, the one who I co-authored the paper with, because she's a psychologist who works with autistic women and girls. And I've talked to her about this, and and she she does think that it's a lot to do with... Thanks. um, (laughs) ..with with the amount of, yeah, shame that we internalise about having these reactions that seem to be
2: improper, you know? if if, you know you're female identifying in society you're kind of raised to think you know to be constantly apologizing and thinking everything you do is wrong and imposter syndrome um I don't know the answer I hope I learn how to take criticism better one day too
1: yeah I recommend becoming a screenwriter because then you'll get criticized (laughs) constantly and I actually did kind of I guess rethink my relationship with critique through screenwriting because um you know, you you, you work with a script editor. So, you're constantly going back and forth and they will tell you what they think about, you know, your dialogue or whatever. Um, Clem,
2: sorry, but I feel really bad about the fact that there's four... There's more people people And I'm wondering, like, sorry to just barge in, but maybe if you got for those of you that need to go somewhere, that you could just go and not feel bad about going and, and the ones that want to um, stay and we can answer Please the questions if Is that okay. No? We
0: really need to finish. I'm really sorry. Quick, there's, quick, another, quick. there's another panel. Ask the question, ask the question. We've got one, okay. No, we've run out of time. <laughs> I'm Sorry. Come can, up after. <laughs> yeah, uh, they'll be at the signing tent. You can- um, Sorry, Jane. That's okay. Fine, no, we just talked <laughs> too much, sorry. <laughs> More panels to get to after this. Uh, would everyone please join me in thanking Clem and Emma. And thanks, Jane.
1: Sorry yeah, thank we didn't let you, you get a word in edgeways.
2: I do not envy you to having to <laughs> mediate this conversation.